Look at all that peace just going around. Dave, I can do that good old youth group trick is when you just start praying and then everyone sits down. Beloved, let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as your scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with deep joy what you have to say to us this day. Amen. This past Sunday, we celebrated the day of Pentecost the day when the Holy Spirit descended upon a humble gathering of believers, empowering them to speak in languages they had never spoken before, to reach out to those who were previously dismissed as unreachable, and embodying within them the possibility and potential of sacred community. Pentecost Sunday, the day that the wild and crazy thing that the church was born. Fast forward a few millennia later, and well, I'm not so sure that many people would describe the church as wild and crazy. In this post-Pentecost era, the church is most likely to be described as highly structured and organized, or decent and orderly. We have long since given up our startup status because today the church is a well-established institution with its own history and culture and, yes, tradition. And when you're around for as long as the church has been around, you are bound to go through a fair amount of change, an inevitable reality that we still haven't quite figured out how to reconcile. Case in point, when the church doesn't change enough, we are accused of worshiping the idol of our past. Or when the church changes too much, we are accused of worshiping the idol of the future. Here's the thing. We are the living body of Jesus Christ, the resurrected son of an immutable God. Yes, we are tethered to the very foundation of the universe, but that doesn't mean we won't change or adapt or learn or grow. As Pentecost shows us, the Holy Spirit is in the business of transformation. Now that is a lovely idea in theory, but in practice, it's pretty complicated. After all, how do we know what changes to make, what adaptations to accept, what learnings to adopt? How do we know when to keep things just as they are and when to move things in a different direction? Well, according to our reformed tradition, the answer is scripture. That's how we know. Not Martin Luther or John Calvin, not C.S. Lewis or Karl Barth, not Tom Elson or Mark Stryker, not even Michelle Vecchio Lysenga or Charlene Han Powell, but scripture. The ever constant and yet constantly dynamic word of God. And that right there is the beauty of this thing we call the Bible. Without changing itself, it is able to continually change us drawing us closer to God no matter who we are, where we are, or when we are. 
And that very belief about scripture undergirds our tradition's commitment to being a church reformed and yet always reforming. Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda. And one practical and yet powerful way that commitment is put into practice is in our worship service. Now when we gather for worship, we aren't just singing some songs and saying some words and some random order and some haphazard fashion. Everything we do from the call to worship to the benediction has been designed with the hope of being the most faithful to scripture, the most honoring of Jesus, and the most open to the work of the Spirit. All that to say, what we do here every week and how we do it matters. It matters to the people gathered. It matters to the world that awaits us outside. And it matters to God. So for the next few weeks, we are going to bring everything we do on a Sunday morning back to scripture. With the Bible in one hand and our order of worship in the other, we are going to break down each element of our worship service with the hopes that it might deepen this sacred time we spend together with God. Guiding us for the first few weeks of this journey is Luke 7. May it offer us wisdom and truth about the part of our service that we call confession. Hear now God's word for you today. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. Friends, the word of the Lord. 
Last Sunday, we kicked off this series by talking about the liturgical movement we open every worship service with, the call to worship. While the words we say might sound ornate, the concept behind them is quite simple. God is here. Our Savior is here. The Spirit is here. That is all we need to worship which is actually good news for all of us because then that means all we need to do is show up just as we are. As Luke 7 shows us, neither the sin of our past nor the correctness of our presentation matters because none of this is about any of us. Right worship is about God and God alone. But just because we aren't the focus of this sacred hour does not mean that we don't come up in the conversation. As we just experienced a few minutes ago, right after the triumphant call to worship and the opening hymn are complete, we shift our gaze from the heights of the heavens to the depths of the earth with the prayer of confession, the assurance of pardon, and the passing of the peace three essential pieces tied together by the reality of sin. Everyone's favorite word, sin. Now, I don't know if you all know this, but a lot of people, especially those within the church, have strong feelings and opinions about sin. What constitutes a sin? What sins are the biggest or the worst? How should we punish sins? How do we absolve ourselves from, move beyond, and rectify our sin? What should we, the church, do about sin? To be fair, it's not just the church that's obsessed with sin. Gone are the days that philosopher Alan Bloom claimed were awash with moral relativism. We have evolved into a time awash with moral judgmentalism, where individuals can be tried, convicted, and banished in the time it takes to publish a damaging tweet. Now, it doesn't matter if you are condemned by the church or canceled by culture, both of these approaches to sin ultimately become about who else is in the wrong, who else to point the finger at, who else has fallen short. Which makes total sense because, you know, if the focus is on someone else, well, then it isn't on me. It's a tale as old as time, or at least as old as the Bible. Just look at our passage from Luke. A story about a woman from the city who, who visits Jesus of Nazareth at the house of a man named Simon. Now Simon was a Pharisee, a member of a devout religious sect committed to staying pure in the eyes of Levitical law. He knew all the sacred commandments by heart. He studied the Torah daily. He dedicated his life to legal obedience. Simon was a righteous person. Unfortunately, the same could not be said about that woman from the city. In the same way Simon was known for being a Pharisee, well, this woman was known for being a sinner. It was her identity. So much so that she couldn't walk out her front door without the stench of her poor choices following closely behind. Condemned by God, canceled by the world. But here's the thing. Since her sin was always with her, that meant she had nothing to hide. 
Everyone already knew who she was and what she had done. And while most days her notoriety led to humiliation and shame, on that day, the day we meet her in Luke, the day she met Jesus, her sin led to forgiveness and peace. And so with nothing but an alabaster jar full of ointment, this woman from the city who was a sinner set out to meet Jesus the Christ. Well, we all know what happens next. The woman storms into Simon's house and proceeds to bathe Jesus' feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. The kind of thing someone who has nothing to lose would do for someone who has given her the one thing she has always wanted. Unconditional love. Simon, on the other hand, is horrified. Scripture tells us that he thought to himself the kind of thing that every single one of us has thought to ourselves at one point or another. Ugh. Really? Her? Why would a prophet of God waste his time on a woman like her when he could be having dinner with someone like me? In Simon's defense, a dinner party was not the usual location to receive holy absolution. You see, Simon came from a tradition in which individuals would bring their prayers to the temple, prayers of confession and supplication. In the case of natural disaster or military defeat, the community would gather like this at the temple and confess their sins as individuals and as a people. And much like Luke 7, there was a lot of drama to the whole ordeal, beating one's breast, wailing before God, wearing sackcloth and smearing ash on one's face, a performance of penitence. And then after all of that, the community would anxiously await word from a prophet, hopefully bringing news of forgiveness, but not necessarily. Receiving a divine pardon was not always a sure thing. And so you can understand Simon's confusion. In his mind, someone's home was not where divine mercy was supposed to be imparted. Washing a random person's feet with your tears was not how clemency was earned. And this traveling preacher from Nazareth was not someone who had the power to forgive. As far as Simon was concerned, he was just having a meal with a local celebrity. But for the woman, she was at church with the Messiah himself. I find it amusing how the text only identifies the woman as a sinner. Simon is given no such label. Now we might mistake this choice as a sexist oversight, but I actually think it's brilliant irony. Because as scripture also teaches us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it's not that Simon isn't a sinner, it's just that he doesn't see himself as one. He is far more concerned with someone else's sin that he is not even aware of his own. But the woman, on the other hand, is well aware of her sin, and because of it, she is the one who gets to see Jesus for who he is. She is the one who honors him with her gratitude. She is the one who receives forgiveness by the Son of God. And she is the one who Jesus sends out into the world 
in peace. There you have it. The confession of sin, the assurance of pardon, the passing of the peace. Thanks be to God. Amen. Last week, I talked about the challenge of conveying the relevance and importance of our Presbyterian tradition to our recent confirmands and to emerging generations in general. As we are well aware, more and more of our youth and young adults are choosing to leave the church, but that doesn't mean that they don't believe in God. And that definitely does not mean that they don't believe in sin. It could be argued that these emerging generations have a much clearer understanding of sin than previous generations. Its insidious impact on us as individuals and its devastating power over our communities and systems. I would venture to say that those of us in the pews could learn a lot about sin from those out there marching in the streets their urgency to call out injustice, their fearlessness in naming hard things, their compassion for those who are oppressed. But I also believe that the church has a powerful lesson in return. You see, as it turns out, this part of the service that we are talking about today, this part of our tradition, is not really about confession. As it turns out, this part of our service, this part of our tradition, is not ultimately about our sin. What is so often missing from any conversation about sin, whether it is in the church or out in the world, is that its other possible outcome is forgiveness and grace. Because as it turns out, just like the call to worship, this part of our service, this part of our tradition is not about us at all, it is about God. God's assurance to us through Christ that there is mercy, there is forgiveness, there is grace for all of us, no questions asked. Which means we don't have to wait anxiously for some prophet to confirm the truth because Jesus already has. Jesus has assured us of that truth with his life, with his death, and with his resurrection the assurance of our pardon. That is the point of this part of our service. That is the foundation of our tradition. Only from that place can we go out into the world in peace. But that part is always preceded by the awareness of our sin. Not just some of us, not just the people that we disagree with, not just those who read the Bible differently than us, but all of us in the exact same measure. That is why we say these prayers together as one, because none of us are exempt from this part of the conversation. None of us are without sin. And so instead of worrying about whose sin is greater, instead of saying, oh, well, we don't struggle with that particular sin in here, Instead of moving from the call to worship straight to the sermon, our tradition tells us to pause, to stop, to consider the ways that we have failed God, the ways we have failed each other, the ways we have failed ourselves, and to confess. To not do as Simon did and be fixated on the sins of others, but to follow in the footsteps of the woman who accepted the fact that she was a sinner. And in that knowledge, to open ourselves to forgiveness and peace. 
That is why we do this part of our worship service every Sunday, because we need it. Our souls need it. The church need it, needs it. Our communities need it. The world needs it. Friends, in just a minute, John and the band are going to lead us in a musical reflection. It is a contemporary song inspired by a traditional hymn entitled, Grace Flows Down. Now, as you listen to the lyrics and sit and pause and reflect, I invite you to do what we do every week in worship. Contemplate your sin by all means, but most importantly, I want you to pause and stop, reflect and rejoice in your forgiveness. And in doing so, then receive God's peace. Amen. Mm -hmm. 